this morning we get to finish up, conclude um, our journey through uh, the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Um, If you recall from the very beginning, one of the things we said about this letter is that it's not specifically identifying a particular church. It's not identifying a particular heresy or a particular error. It was widely circulated across that region. And so quite possibly Paul in his mind was thinking that this was for everyone. And so we get to conclude that this morning. Um, When you think about the context of the early believers, they didn't show up on the Lord's day and only hear a part of this letter, right? So, so they got there, they knew this letter arrived and they show up and they're like, okay, I want to hear the letter. And so before we jump in, I think it's helpful just to remind you very quickly of what we've gone through. Um, We get to see Um, what they've learned as a result of Jesus Christ's incorruptible love, right? Paul said, you've been redeemed. You've obtained an inheritance. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Earlier on, we witnessed Paul actually pray in his letter that we, those who hear it, would know the hope of Jesus. Paul reminded us that while we were dead in sin, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in transgression, made us alive together with Christ. And though we were once separated from God, now that we are united in one with Christ, we have actually been brought near as fellow citizens of heaven. Because we're rooted and grounded in love, in Christ's unending, incorruptible love, Paul begs us to walk according to our new identity as Christians, as followers of Jesus, with humility and gentleness and patience, able to bear with one another in love. He encouraged us to set aside our old way of living. To put on the new self, to imitate God, to walk in love, and to try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Moreover, he made it clear that it's not an individual journey that we're on, that we're to do it together, appropriately submitting to one another in love, knowing that our Lord will supply our every need. And it's with all of that in mind that the hearers hear this last part. See, this passage contains the central verse of the letter, but it's also the central verse of our theme this ministry year to stand firm. And that's in verse 14 of chapter 6. Remember as a body, we are to stand firm on Scripture in Christ with one another. And today we get to uncover the specifics that Paul provides on how we are to faithfully fulfill that instruction. And he says that you, church, are enabled to stand firm because of Christ's incorruptible love toward you. That's why you can stand firm. You guys might recall the Apostle John wrote, we love, why? 
because he first loved us. Yes, our lives are to demonstrate his love. That's our effort. But it's more important to attach ourselves to Christ because his work is complete. And so we are to rest assured that we are securely his. And in doing so, his incorruptible love drives our own expression of love. And as we go through this, it is important to remember before we even hear it, that the battle has already been won. Okay, we have to keep that in mind. Because the battle has been won, we can read, hear, listen to this passage and recognize the characteristics and the virtues that are already ours as we stand in Christ, rather than think that there are works that we have to do to stand in Christ. Friends, we are to put on Christ. We're to cling to our identity in Christ, to live confidently with great hope. We know that the world is against us. Anyone here doubt that? Raise your hand if you do, because there's a whole bunch of people that would be happy to talk to you. But just because the world is against you doesn't mean you have to live in fear. There is no fear. Though there's this spiritual battle raging on around us and raging inside of us, we are not to be afraid because the battle has been won. And according to Paul, as we look here, the battle, the things that we encounter, the challenges of everyday life are not merely earthly happenings. Anybody ever experienced relational challenges? Yeah? Work, school, within the church? Yeah? Anybody waded through ethical challenges? Maybe with your kid's schooling situation, maybe with making a decision that you have to do something or um, something that might be preventing you from working. Maybe you're enduring physical challenges. I know there's no one here enduring those. Anybody dealing with financial challenges? If you're not, somehow you're unaware of what's going on around you. See, all of these have physical and psychological elements to them, but according to Scripture, it's not mere flesh and blood that we're fighting. See, we're not mere flesh and blood. We are spiritual beings, and therefore it makes sense that we would be fighting a spiritual battle. Now, here's my concern. We see this passage and we start thinking spiritual warfare. And there's one group of people that says, I don't want to really listen because there's these crazy people who think that there are demons behind every tree. And then on the other side of the equation, because that exists over there, there's people who say, I don't want to have this conversation because of those people over there. 
But what do you know about a pendulum? Eventually, it comes to the middle. And what Paul is saying is that we deal with a spiritual battle that manifests itself in practical ways. So you have to talk about it. You cannot avoid it. But here he, in the context, is making it clear that it's not necessarily what you think it is. We have to take into account Satan's efforts to stand firm. So let's dig in. Chapter 6 of Ephesians, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints. And also for me, that the words, or that words, may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Before we go to the final section there, I want to focus in here. There's a few imperatives that kick off that section. Did you see them? You might have missed them. He says, be strong in the Lord. He says, put on the whole armor of God. And he says, stand. Paul is effectively instructing his hearers, the church, us. He's saying, hey guys, be strong in the Lord. Our natural question should be, but, but Paul, how am I to be strong in the Lord? And he says, well, it's pretty simple. Put on the armor that God's already given you. And you say, well, well but why would I want to do that? Or why would I need to do that? Well, in case you didn't know, the devil prowls around like a lion seeking to destroy. And I've already told you that you need to be able to withstand his tactics. So he's having this conversation with the church. And four times in four verses, Paul tells us to do what? Stand. 
given the repetition and the fact that the last time it's repeated, it's actually an imperative, it's likely that it's Paul's main instruction in this passage. See, our minds go to the next part. Our minds go to this spiritual battle. But, but he says, no, 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 I want you to get this first. Because without that, you can't even deal with the next part. See, we're to stand. We're to be strong and put on God's armor so that we're able to withstand the schemes of the enemy. Now, in battle, in any contest, in any competition, there's typically an offensive and a defensive position, right? And that's true in this battle as well. Now, show of hands, anybody ever been at a basketball game, football game, baseball game, where all of a sudden, home team starts yelling, defense, defense, right? What's it sound like? Yeah, we got one. Everybody else going, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. How long does it go on? Is it once or over and over and over again? Anybody ever hear the phrase defense wins championships? It's biblical. See, through both the order and the amount of attention Paul gives to this, Paul infers that victory begins defensively. So let's start there. So let's look at the defensive position we need to understand. Defense, by definition, is resisting something. If a boulder is heading downhill and you're standing against it, what are you doing? You're trying to resist the force of gravity from allowing it to squash you, right? If you're a center on a football team and you are trying to protect your quarterback, what do you do to the nose tackle who's coming at you? You block, you push, you resist. James's words should come to mind. He said, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Friends, we're instructed throughout scripture not to give the enemy any ground. Not an inch, we are to stand firm and resist. And our strength to stand firm is found in our union with Christ. Anybody ever tried to resist a car that is sliding on an icy road? Yeah? It's not fun, is it, right? Why? Because your feet don't have anything secure. You're hoping that you can find something that has melted enough that this thing doesn't keep moving. What you are grounded in matters. And that's where Paul starts. 
Ephesians 1.19 said that there, there's an immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us. So that means to stand firm. This is the foundation. We must remember who we are on account of whose we are. And because of whose we are, we can consider what is already ours. Do you guys catch that? Anybody want me to repeat it? I got a few people nodding their heads. Let me one more time. We must remember who we are on account of whose we are. And because of whose we are, we can consider what is already ours. See, to have an effective defensive strategy, we must understand whose we are. And once we understand whose we are, then we can consider who it is that we are fighting. In this case, Paul's already discussed who we're fighting. Back in chapter 4, he says it's the devil. Greek title is Diablos, which is specifically translated as slanderer. As discussed a few weeks back, the devil accuses. He condemns, which I find interesting because in reality, he really has no cause or authority to condemn, but he condemns because he's deceived in his own mind. He opposes and he's our adversary. There's a bunch of names for him in scripture. I'm not going to walk through those for the sake of time. But if you stop to consider them this week, they will help you understand that he is powerful, although his powerfulness is limited to the things of this world. He's wicked, he seeks to destroy, he's deceitful, he's cunning. And because that's what the enemy is like, we need God's armor. The enemy opposes God. So God gives us armor to oppose the enemy. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, there's a problem. In one sense, you're lucky. Because if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not opposing the enemy. You're fighting for him. He's your God. But if you've placed your faith and your trust in the shed blood of Jesus to save you, to redeem you, to rescue you from the God of this world, the God of this world desperately wants to destroy you because you stand in opposition to him. And in that case, you need God's armor. Now, our enemy, Diablos, is strategic. In verse 11, Paul says that the enemy has schemes. He has strategies. And you say, well, but, but I don't understand. There's nothing listed here. Well, again, it's in the context of the letter. Go back to chapter 4. Paul said that the enemy tries to gain a foothold by tempting us to speak and lie, right? Speak falsely and lie. The enemy wants us to fail to control our temper. The enemy wants us to respond in anger. That's verse 26. He encourages us to steal. That's verse 28. 
What's interesting though is he doesn't want us to just steal things. He actually desires that we try to steal glory from God. And then in verse 29, Paul emphasizes that the enemy desires that we participate in gossip. That's the scheme of the enemy that we're to stand against. The enemy that we fight, in a sense, is near. Look at verse 12. Paul says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against evil spiritual forces. Now, that word wrestle is not used anywhere else in Scripture. It's the only occurrence. So you say, well, how do you know that it means wrestle? And it's a good question. And the only way that we know that it means wrestle is because it's commonly used outside of Scripture during that same time period to describe wrestling. So it's likely what Paul is referencing, something those in the first century culture could quickly identify with. Now, how many of you are familiar with wrestling? Some? I'm not talking about WWE, okay? That's not wrestling. That's acting. And if you don't think it's acting, we've got other problems. But in the real sport of wrestling, it is a close, intense fatiguing battle where the objective is to dominate over an opponent. That's what it's for. And though wrestling is an activity that's intense, it requires exceptional fitness. Wrestling is also very strategic because you need to be aware of what your opponent is doing so that way you can quickly counteract what he or she is doing. Now, my boys got to experience wrestling for the first time this year, and what they learned was that when they were going against people who also were experiencing it for the first time, wrestling wasn't that difficult because the other person had no clue what they were doing. But as soon as they were going against an opponent who had two, three, four, five, six years of experience, anything they tried quickly put them on their back and they were done. They did not know how to counteract the enemy. And what Paul is saying is you need to know how to do that. You need to know his schemes. See, when Jesus told Peter, Satan asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Jesus was making it clear that the enemy was near to Peter. How many have ever sifted wheat? Anybody? We got a couple, maybe, kind of, okay? Can you sift wheat from afar? I'm not sure I got it. No, you have to hold it in your hand or you have to create a mechanism, a machine that does that because it's something that is near. So do you realize what that means? Satan asks, hey, He asked to sift you like wheat. Peter, um, Satan wanted to be so close that he could hurt you. Did Jesus prevent that process? No. He's sovereign over the process. 
Do we know why Jesus allowed it? No. Friends, we don't need to know why he allowed it. See, many here are facing things that don't necessarily make sense. The enemy seems to be sifting us like wheat. And I'm here to tell you that it's okay to not understand why. You don't have to have an answer why. We don't have an account of Jesus explaining to Peter the why. And you don't have to have an answer either. It's okay. So Paul says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now remember, Paul's in prison, right? Do you remember who Paul was? Paul was imprisoned, chained, beaten with rods a few times, stoned, shipwrecked, left for dead. And he says that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. Now, how many of you would think that you're wrestling with flesh and blood if that's what you experience in this life? Yeah? See, that sure seems like wrestling with flesh and blood to me. And he says with confidence that it's not wrestling with flesh and blood because he's aware that there is a spiritual battle beneath these physical outworkings. The battle is with the powers that work with the evil one as he seeks to destroy those who are God's. And so as we wrestle, God says that we're to put on the armor that God has designed and provided for his armor is perfect for the battle that we are facing. And since the battle, the real battle has already been won by Jesus Christ, the Messiah who overcame death as we celebrated last week, it makes sense that Paul instructs us to put on the same armor that he did when he walked this earth and fought the same enemy, does it not? And that means we need the right armor for the battle that we're in. We need the right clothes for the occasion. I know that last night there was a few high schools that had a prom, correct? What do you think would happen if a guy showed up at prom dressed like I am? Got kids in the back laughing at me. Because <laughs> they know, be like, something's wrong here. How many ladies spent a lot of time thinking about what was the dress they were going to wear on their wedding day. They wanted something that fit the occasion. So if we're in a battle, if we're in a sword fight, how many of you want to show up in either pajamas or a bathing suit? Is that the safest way to go? No? Why not? It's a sword fight. So let's take a peek 
at the armor that protects us as we stand defensively firm. First, there's a belt of truth. We are to stand firm on Scripture, on truth. We're to know the truth. We're to live in His truth. We're to speak His truth. And to do this, we come to Jesus, we believe in Jesus, we rest in Jesus, and then we remind ourselves of the gospel of Jesus Christ often. That's how we put on the belt of truth. Secondly, we are to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now there's more here that meets the eye. Isaiah 59 verse 17 says that Yahweh put on, finished, complete, righteousness like a breastplate. See, we don't put on our positional righteousness. We don't put on who we are in Christ. It's been put on us. So then why does Paul use this language? Because he's not talking about our right standing before God, because that's already been given to us permanently. It's already on. Paul is saying that you must put on the virtue of righteousness. Remember the, the schemes of the enemy that he's already talked about. What are they dealing with? External behavior. He's causing us to try to respond in anger. He's causing us, desiring for us to participate in gossip. And so Paul says, no, put on Christ's virtuous righteousness, the practical side. We put on the new self walking as God's child. This way we don't even give a millimeter to Satan in the areas of impurity or lust or greed Or whatever sin you yourself are prone to. Remember the foundation? Remember the footing? Whose we are. Remember that. Remember who you are in Christ. Live in dependence upon him. His love gave us our new self. His love is incorruptible. So we put on the belt of truth and his virtue of righteousness. And then he says, put on shoes. Now there's no descriptor here. Doesn't say like shoes to run, shoes to fight, shoes. There's nothing. There's nothing. And so you say, so what kind of shoes? Well, verse 15 says the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So what shoes are you to put on? You are to put on shoes, meaning that you are ready at all times to share the gospel. And friends, it's not just that we can share the gospel. It's not that we... It's that our resemblance of Christ is the, in the way we live is compelling to others that we share the gospel. 
Typically, you put on shoes so you can walk. And earlier in Ephesians, it says, walk in a manner worthy of what? The gospel. And so therefore, he's telling us, put on shoes so that way your manner of life proclaims the gospel. Because friends, I'll be honest with you. While our relationship with Christ matters, it's our resemblance to Christ that really matters. We're to be ready to share the gospel in word and action. And then he says, put on the shield of faith. The word here for shield is not referring to the little one that goes on your arm, kind of like a Frisbee that you can kind of stand and you see in sword fights on TV, that's okay. That's not the shield he's talking about. The shield of faith that he's talking about is actually referring to a shield that's the size of a door. It's a big shield. Ever see a scene in a movie where you have soldiers lined side by side with these shields that are taller than them and they're leaning over them and they kind of have a spear pointing between them as basically a whole bunch of enemies come at them, right? Why is it that big? Because what's being hurled over the top? Fiery arrows, and so by being underneath here, the shield is dug into the ground. The, basically, it's over the top of them. They have a little spear sticking out. I'm not sure what the spear is for. I guess it's just in case somebody gets really close. But it's really to protect them from the stuff that's coming that, I don't know about you, you guys ever tried to avoid an arrow mid-flight? Anybody? So I'm going to tell you a little story. <laughs> I wasn't the, bro okay. I'm not the brightest person in the world. But in college, I lived with a bunch of gymnasts and a bunch of wrestlers. And I, I rode a motorcycle. And we thought it was a good idea to put on the motorcycle helmet and grab a baseball bat and have somebody launch a bottle rocket at you and try to hit it mid-flight. Seriously, yes. <laughs> Paul, the Lord had to do a bunch to bring me to him. Trust me. He, he preserved my life. We'll just put it there. What I can tell you is that avoiding a bottle rocket moving at you is really hard. And it really hurts when it hits you. <laughs> hey, but our face was protected. <laughs> I know why he's saying put on a shield because Guys, you're not moving. You cannot move fast enough to avoid it. You need something else to protect you. And lastly, he says to we're to put on the helmet of salvation. See, this is where I, I, I didn't read my Bible even though I grew up in the church. See, for him, the last instruction is the helmet. I started with only the helmet. But the helmet of salvation here is the same 
back in the same passage in Isaiah 59, verse 17, that says, Yahweh wears the helmet of salvation. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul calls it a helmet of the hope of salvation. If you're wondering specifically where, I believe it's chapter 5, verse 8. We're to put on the hope we have in Christ. Don't mind me, we have a little technical issue. All of my notes are now gone. Minor detail. There we go. We are to put on the hope we have in Christ. No matter what we face, we should remain firm and confident in our Lord. We shouldn't live in fear, dwell in anxiety. We should stand strong. If we put these things on as God has arranged, we can stand strong and stand firm on Scripture in Christ. Now, practical question for you. Do one of these articles of armor make more sense than the other to you? Like, do you say, hey, I understand that I got the hope, but I don't really understand the helmet of salvation. Or I really understand the shield, but this whole shoe thing, that's really not for me because I just really prefer flip-flops. Which, by the way, I could never wear. Just personal information you need to know. But really, does one make more sense than another? Is one easier for you to consider putting on? It does for me. See, for me, grabbing, hey, you know what? I've got God's word. And as long as I've got God's word, I'm good. Anybody ever said that? This is all I need? Anybody? Yeah. Paul doesn't say, grab one of these. Paul says twice that we are to take up the whole armor of God. See, he doesn't say that you can put on one piece and another can put on a different one. Hey, Elijah, you're good. You got the belt of truth, provided Joey grabs the shield of faith because together you guys are good. And then Nathan back there, yeah, you can strap on the breastplate of righteousness you know, Ethan's got shoes, and then as long as Jaden grabs that shield, we're good. And together they're protected. That's not what he says. He says that each one of those young men are to put on the whole armor of God. You may remember the scene in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian spent three days up at the Palace Beautiful and he had just received his armor. And as soon as he leaves the palace, he had heard that a friend, Faithful, had just passed by. And so Christian wanted somebody to be on this journey with. And so he wants to catch up with Faithful. So he's got a companion. But the problem was the palace sits on this hill. And the hill is called difficulty and it's really steep. And at the bottom of the hill is this valley called humiliation. 
And so the woman who cared for him while at the palace, her name was Discretion. She and her daughters help him down this hill to make sure he's okay. But when they get down there, Discretion gives him some food and she and her daughters go back up. So here's Christian at the bottom of this hill in the Valley of Humiliation. He's alone. And I'm going to read in the modern younger reader's version because that's what I identify with. It's quiet and cool. And he walked on quickly, hoping to soon to see faithful in the distance. But instead of faithful, he presently saw a very evil looking man coming along the path to meet him. The man was tall and strong, and his face was not a pleasant one. As he drew near, Christian remembered his name, for he saw him before. He was one of the chief officers in the army of the wicked prince, and he was called Self. He, he, he's one of the king's enemies, thought Christian, and he's going to try to hurt me. What shall I do? Well, at first he thought he would turn around and run toward the foot of the hill. Discretion might actually look back and see him, or perhaps watchful, who's at the top at the palace, might be at the palace gates and would send someone to help him. But then he remembered that he had no armor for his back and that his breastplate and his shield would be of no use to him unless he faced the enemy. So he determined to trust in the king and go straight on. First of all, Bunyan's profound. See, even as we put on the whole armor of God, we cannot run from self. We are our greatest enemy. The best option for Christian was to hold his ground, to stand firm, to trust in the armor that the Lord had provided. Friends, that's our best option too. To stand firm, to hold our ground, to trust the armor that the Lord has provided as we bring the gospel into the world. Friends, we are to prepare defensively. I think it's helpful to think of your leaders in this congregation, whether elders, deacons, care group leaders, in a sense, as your defensive coordinator. We're here to remind you of the importance and the method and the strategy of defense. But see, it's not just that your leaders are commissioned in this battle. Each of you here, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are here as a follower of Jesus, should consider yourself as a defensive captain on the field. You are fighting the battle, right? 
you have a responsibility to help those that are on your team remember what is the defensive strategy. Men, don't be surprised if you get a text from me that simply says, how's your defense? Because it's what matters. Are you preparing well? But see, this passage isn't just about defense. There is also an offensive inference. It's offensive in that it relates to offense. It's not offensive in that it offends you. Okay, right, Dr. Lau? Okay, just making sure. I tried to pay attention in class. See, the final piece of equipment that Paul encourages us to prepare ourselves with is the sword of the Spirit. Now, unlike the shield, which was huge, the term here for sword actually refers to a short sword or even a dagger that's used in personal combat. So again, if we're wrestling, this is close, this is near, it makes sense that the language here relates, and it does. Now, Paul further defines this offensive weapon as the Word of God. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's interesting because we were supposed to stand on truth, right? The belt of truth, which is the word of God. Okay, so that means it's both offensive and defensive. Yes, but no. See, one would think that the word here, the word of God, would be logos for the word. But it's not. It's Shema. Sorry, Rema, which normally refers to the spoken word. Means we are to speak the word. That's our offensive weapon, is to speak the gospel. Well, how do we do this well? Well, to speak the gospel well and proficiently, you need to know the gospel well. You need to read it. You need to meditate on it. You need to memorize it so that way you can proclaim it. Remember what Christ's defensive strategy was? How did he respond to the attack of the enemy in the desert? He said, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me, let me go get the law. And he went back and he ran and grabbed a whole bunch of scroll. No. What did he do? He spoke truth to the enemy. Now you might say, okay, I can do that. But see, then we get to this verse 18. It says, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then the phrase actually continues in the Greek. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. See, he doesn't begin a new thought. He continues the thought. 
That as we're speaking the gospel, we're actually supposed to be speaking the gospel and praying at the same time, which means we're communicating with the Father. So we don't put on prayer like armor. We actively pray. When was the last time you stopped to think about the incredible and abundant privilege It is that God desires us to approach the throne. Melanie, Justin, Robbie, Randy, Brad, Miss Donna, I probably don't have to ask you. (laughs) Will, when's the last time you thought about the privilege it is that he desires us to approach the throne? Friends, that privilege cost Jesus his life. Say, since the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve chose disobedience, all access to the Father in that way was barred against sinners. Until Jesus Christ opened up the passage, he bore our sin. And what was the earthly demonstration that access to the Father was granted? The temple curtain, this massive, massive, massive thick curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. So that's the privilege. Now we all want a faithful friend. Someone whom we trust so dearly here on earth that we can share our burdens, our pains, our fears. When something happens in your life, is there someone that you pick up the phone and call? Is there someone you quickly text and say, hey, I need prayer? We all want that, don't we? See, prayer directs us to God who is our most most faithful friend, who can best counsel and help us. See, in prayer, and this is why it's an offensive weapon, first we reveal our secrets and our troubles of our souls to God. It's our talking and our communing with God. It's sharing our desires with God. The Lord. It's casting all our burdens before Him, who is the one who's able to sustain us. Prayer is the how or the way that we obtain the mercies that we need. And so, friends, when Paul says here, Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit. He's not encouraging that we pray in tongues. See, if you consider the context, because context matters, with the rest of Ephesians, what is he referring to here? Well, 
He's repeated that we come to the Father through Christ by the Spirit. And because of the gift of the Spirit, whom Christ sent, we are provided access to God as we fight the battle. Which is why he says, pray at all times in the Spirit, because it's through the Spirit that you have access to the one whom you need most. And if that's not enough of how important this is, Paul emphasizes the need for prayer through the use of four alls. First, he says at all times, meaning we can pray everywhere. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. Now, it doesn't mean that we pray to the neglect of all of our other duties, but rather that we pray regularly as described in Genesis 8.22. If you've never made the connection to Genesis 8.22, that passage in 1 Thessalonians 5, do it. Write it down, go home, and figure it out. Because it will help you understand what he means by pray without ceasing. It means that we are always ready to pray. Ezekiel Hopkins once wrote when considering prayer, and I know I'm leaning now on Bill's love of people. He says, we must certainly do two things. Hear this. Be not too much in the business and pleasures of this life. The world with its affections must not be allowed to stifle and extinguish the holy flames ascending to heaven. And two, be careful not to fall into the commission of any known and presumptuous sin. Because the guilt of sin lying upon the conscience will exceedingly deaden a heart for prayer. Well, that's consistent. If we resist the schemes of the enemy that lures us into sin, if we do that, and we effectively pray, we are prepared for battle. Another all, we pray with all prayer and supplication. Just means we're to be faithful. Just be faithful. We're to keep alert with all perseverance. See, friends, Jesus' closest friends didn't stay awake in the garden, did they? Paul's encouraging us to avoid that error, to learn from them. He says, persist in prayer so that you can overcome fatigue, discouragement, hardship, and anxiety. And lastly, we're to intercede for all the saints. Why does he say that here? I thought he's talking about you. Because the rest of the letter is about the unity of the church. It's been a major concern. He's emphasizing that we should be praying for other Christians. And then he goes on and he says, And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am ambassador in change, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. 
if Paul, the prisoner for the Lord, or here the ambassador of the Lord, who's in chains because he's proclaiming the gospel, is instructing the followers of Jesus to pray for him so that he has boldness for, for proclaiming the gospel, how many of you need prayer to be bold in proclaiming the gospel? Raise your hands, folks. Yeah, you need it. And if you're not praying for one another, you've missed it. And I want to end and close as Paul closed. Verse 21. So that you may also know how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Paul ends his letter by using the same words as he started the letter with. Peace and grace. And then here he adds faith and love. Is it not appropriate and beautiful that he repeats love three times in just as many verses in a letter that emphasizes the unfathomable love of God in Jesus Christ? Friends, Paul calls us to stand on Scripture to stand in Christ, to stand with one another. And here he says we are to be characterized by love incorruptible. See, while our manner of life matters, while we're called to make the best use of our time, our affection for the one in whom we believe matters most. And that means that this isn't the end of our journey in standing firm, but rather the beginning. You will never be perfect. Sorry. You'll never love others perfectly. You'll never be a perfect parent. You'll never be a perfect daughter or a perfect son. You'll never resist temptation perfectly. And yet, Jesus Christ died for you. Fully aware of your deficiency. Fully aware. Friends, He loves you as you are today. He loved you as you are today before the foundation of the world. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Do you love Christ with an incorruptible love? Likely not. But he loves you with an incorruptible love. So grace be to you 
who love our Lord Jesus Christ, whose love is incorruptible. Let's pray. Lord God, my request is simple. I pray that your children would know beyond the shadow of a doubt your love for them. I pray that your grace and your mercy may abound in the hearts and the minds of this little congregation. I pray that our love for one another would grow on account of who we are because of whose we are. Lord, we are yours. Lord, on behalf of this congregation, we submit our lives to you. We're grateful for your love. Our desire is that we would demonstrate your love and be characterized by your love. Very different from the rest of this world. Thank you for redeeming us, for rescuing us, for securing our hope. Lord Jesus, it's in your name I ask and pray and thank you. Amen.